that were coming, etc. It was 70, and then it was 80, and then it was 90, and it just kept going. And so we thank the Reverend Harris and also the ladies uh, for just going with us as the applications came in. Um, so we thank you sincerely just for your flexibility and how you've made us feel so welcome already and undoubtedly will. And we thank you just for all you've done tonight. Acts chapter 9, and we'll begin at verse 3, and we'll read to verse 22. Acts chapter 9, here we have the conversion and subsequent change of the Apostle Paul, Saul as he's called here. Acts 9 verse 3, we read, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hands on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call in thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them, which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength. And confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And we're going to consider this passage together and really think about what happened after Paul became a Christian and think about Paul's new life in Christ. Uh, so let's, we're going to think about that tonight, but let's briefly pray. And then we'll consider for a few minutes uh, these words, these verses together. Father, we thank you. Uh, ready just for the meeting, we thank you for the exalting 
and the uplifting of Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for the young people here. Uh, we thank you for all of them here. Uh, we thank you for our singing, singing concerning the child Jesus. Take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of shame. We thank you, Lord, for the one who was born as a man who had a reasonable and a rational soul, and yet at the same time was God. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that he was called Jesus to save us from our sins. And we pray today that we will know his forgiveness in our life. Uh, Lord, if we've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that this evening for some young person, for perhaps even a child here, for someone who has frequented this house for many a week or many a month or year, uh, we pray that they might taste and see if they've never been there. And Lord, for we who are in Jesus Christ, we pray that we will know what even Saul experienced here as he was strengthened, as he increased the more in strength, as he went forwards and not backwards. We pray that if we're in Christ tonight, that we'll exhibit these fruits of righteousness and exhibit and show that we are finally alive, that we enjoy that we have new life in Jesus Christ. So bless us to that end. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to pick out a few thoughts tonight from Acts chapter 9 about Paul here as he enjoyed this new life in Christ. But verse 19 uh, sums up what we have to say where we read, When he received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Many years ago in the city of London, there was a well-known businessman. And he owned a, an old, I suppose an old uh, warehouse that was neglected. Uh, the roof was beginning to fall in. Uh, vandals would have often retorted to it at the weekend. They had broken in, they had ruined it uh, in their evenings. Uh, the hinges were off the doors, doors were kind of hanging off it, windows were put through. Uh, I'm sure you see the picture that we're trying to paint here. And there's an interested man in the building in this old uh, warehouse, this old fallen in cave in uh, warehouse. And he, we went to this, this businessman who owned the particular property. And he, he said, look, I'm interested. I would like to buy it. And before they got to bidding, well, the, the man who owned it, he said, well, look, I'll do some touching up. I'll, I'll touch up the, the doors, the windows, etc. I'll do some repairs. I'll do uh, some, some changing as well. If there's any structural damage, I'll, I'll repair it before I sell it on. And the prospective buyer said this. He said, sir, I'm not interested in the building. I'm going to bulldoze it and build something completely new. I'm going to bulldoze it and build something completely new. Now when we think about becoming a Christian, as Olivia has intimated well in her testimony tonight, we become something new. God, he takes you, he transforms your life. As she quoted, the, the old things, they pass away and all things become new. And the Bible makes this absolutely and abundantly clear. Many, many instances, especially in the New Testament, it speaks about what it is to, to be made anew or to enjoy new life in Jesus Christ. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, we are exhorted to put on the new man after which God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, we're told as newborn babes, we are to desire the sincere milk of the word of God that we may grow 
thereby. And so Christians are described as really newborn babies. They are made, they are created anew. And here in Acts chapter 9, Paul, he's he's not a child, he's not a teenager, he's a, a fully grown man by this stage. However, he is just a spiritual baby. Spiritual baby in the sense that he has just been made new. He has just been born again. Previously he was dead in his sin. Previously there was no spiritual life in the Apostle Paul. Yes, he was a religious individual. Yes, he, had, he, he went to the house of God, etc. He worshipped God. He was an orthodox individual. He was a Pharisee, a very, very strict uh, and religious individual. But he was dead in sins. There was no life in him. He was not a Christian. He did not enjoy the life of God in his soul. And so he was dead. But in this chapter, he becomes a new man. He is made, he is recreated anew. God, he convicts him in his sin. Jesus Christ calls out of him in this great shining light. In the midday as he's on his way to Damascus, as he's near Damascus, And as he was near Damascus, Jesus Christ speaks to him. And he calls him to himself. Saul, he is converted and he is made anew. And here we we find him then, really from, uh, I suppose, verse 4 or verse 5 onwards, when, when Saul is saved. Here we have Paul's new life in Jesus Christ. And we see a completely changed man. Let me make this clear from the word go. Oh yes, he, he, he wasn't the finished article. He wouldn't be, he wasn't a great theologian here at this particular stage. He, he wasn't writing books of the New Testament. But at the same time, his mindset, his attitude towards Jesus Christ in an instant is completely different. He, he says to the Lord, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He calls him his Lord. He recognizes that this man, Jesus Christ, is now his master. And from then on, we begin to see his new life in Jesus Christ. We begin to see it grow. We begin to see it develop. We begin to see him gradually change and be more like Jesus Christ, the one who has saved him. We see him made anew. You see, tonight, when you have new life in Jesus Christ, then you are to live a new life. You are to live, you are to walk, you are to act, you are to think differently. And I say that to the young people here in the auditorium. We, we say that to, to those in the building, all who are listening on. When Jesus Christ saves you, you are a new person, a completely different individual. You're born again. And so for a few minutes tonight, we just want to highlight Paul's New life in Christ and show some of the very simple ways that he exhibits that he is a new person, that he is a, a new creature. The first change I want to highlight here is Paul's, uh, when we talk about Paul's new life in Christ, is his changed perspective. His changed perspective, and we read this in verse 6. He trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? The Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Before this instance, when Saul became a Christian, I want to suggest to you that Saul did whatever he liked, whenever he wanted to do it. 
Now we see this very, very simply in this chapter. We didn't read it for sake of time, but if you look at verse 1, we read, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. Prior to becoming a Christian, Saul, although he was a religious individual, he hated Jesus, he hated Jesus Christ's people. And because of that, he hated Jesus Christ. Now, why do I use the term hate? Well, if you just see how he treated them, I don't think that, that, that it's, it's wrong to say that. It speaks of them breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples. The, the term breathing out, it, it has the idea of, of just breathing, and it's really what keeps you alive or keeps you going. And that's, of course, that's what, that's what we do when we breathe. It keeps us alive. We would use the, the saying, for example, today, well, well he lived for it. He, he, he ate and he slept and he breathed it. This is what keeps a, an individual going. And that's the thought here, really, of verse 1. He was breathing in. This is what kept Paul going. This is what made Paul tick. This fact that he went to Christians and he, he literally took them, women, children, and men, and it was his desire to heal them or to throw them into prison. This is how Paul lived his life. He did what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. But you see, as soon as he becomes a Christian, in verse 6, what's the first thing he says to Jesus Christ after he becomes a Christian? He calls him Lord, yes, but more, but more importantly, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do for you? And whenever the Lord answered him, he didn't give him the whole picture. He just told him, essentially, look, go on to Damascus, and it'll be told you what you're going to do. In other words, just keep going on your journey. Go to Damascus. And so he might have wanted more at this stage. He's a young Christian. He's bursting with, with enthusiasm, with energy. He recognizes that Christ is now his master. He is now his Lord. But no, no, no. He submits he is not his own master anymore. No, no, no. He's under new management. He has this changed perspective that it's not about me and what I want to do with my life. His changed perspective is this. Lord, what will thou have me to do for you? And this is one of the great evidences that you enjoy new life tonight. But you recognize very simply that you do not belong to yourself. Of course, even outside of Christ, you should recognize that anyway. Who is it that gives you the very breath in your lungs? Who is it that provides for your every need to sustain you and keep you alive? It's God, of course, in heaven, the Father of lights. He is good to us. But especially when you enjoy new life in Jesus Christ. You need to understand tonight when Christ saves you, he owns you. He becomes your proprietor. He has died for you. And so what, is, what does he do in dying for you? He purchases you with the price of his own precious blood. To use the terminology of 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20. What? And he goes on to say, Paul, ye are not your own. Know ye not that you're not your own? You don't belong to your, yourself. And he goes on in verse 20 to say, ye are brought, bought with a price. Of course, that price is the price of Christ's blood. And tonight, if you claim to be in Jesus Christ, then you will show this by simply recognizing that it's the Lord who is the Lord of your life. 
and you exhibit this changed perspective. How are you to live your life every day, Christian? How do you show others around you, whether it's in work or school, university, even at home? How do you show others that you belong to Jesus? Well, you simply, when you get up, you say, Lord, it's not what I want to do today. It's, Lord, what will thou have me to do? In Romans chapter 14, we have a great chapter on practical issues. How to live a Christian life. Two great issues, stumbling block as, as well as unnecessarily passing judgment on someone. And after making those, 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 dealing with those issues, in Romans 14 verses 7 and 8, Paul uses this line of argumentation. He says this, None of us liveth to himself. No man dieth to himself. Verse 8, whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. In other words, it doesn't matter where, where we are in terms of existence. Whether we live or whether we die, we belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to him. Tonight I trust that you do belong to him. And if you claim to belong to him, that, you, that you're very, very aware that he is the master of you. It's like the, the shop, whenever it, it has a new owner, you have, you have the sign after it goes up for sale and it's sold, etc. You have the sign, under new management. Every Christian tonight has that invisible sign above them. I'm under new management. Under new management. Jonathan Goforth was a Canadian Presbyterian missionary who eventually went to China whenever Hudson Taylor was there. One of the things that I really appreciate about Jonathan Goforth is the fact that he didn't go out in a... He wanted to go out under the auspices of the local church. And he was the first, if I'm right in saying this, he was the first Presbyterian minister to go to China under the, the auspices of the, of, the, of, the, of the local church. But, you know, he was, whenever he was raised, he, he had a very hard-working upbringing... And he wasn't converted until he was aged 18. Whenever the minister in his, his local area was replaced by an evangelical minister, he heard the gospel. And he said this immediately when he was converted. The very minute that he was converted, he said this, Henceforth my life belongs to him who gave his life for me. My life belongs to him who gave his life for me. Whenever a number of years later in his, his early 20s, there was a great missionary who had came to, to the area. It was George Mackey. He was the missionary really in what is now modern day Taiwan. And he heard him speak. And as he heard him speak about the claims of Asia, this is how young Jonathan Goforth responded. He said this, Here was I, bought with the precious blood of Christ, daring to do with my life, as I saw fit. Here was I bought with the blood of Christ. Daring to do. With my life. As I saw fit. Christ he has purchased you tonight. You're his purchased possession. And so it's. Your reasonable service and mindset. To simply say Lord what will thou have me to do. I trust that you're doing that tonight. His changed perspective. I want you to see another aspect of. Paul's new life in Christ. Think with me about his constant pardon. His constant pardon. And I, I think this, this is intimated in verses 13 and 14 of Acts chapter 9. 
Well, we read Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. Now he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Saul was a very wicked individual before his conversion. As I said, he hated Christ, he hated Christ's people. Jesus himself said to him, prior to his conversion, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul, why are you persecuting my people and ultimately persecuting me? So I want you to imagine that, that Saul, and to put it in, in, in very simple terminology, Saul had an awful lot of skeletons in the closet. You remember in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned in Jerusalem. We read in Acts chapter 7 that a young man named Saul was doing what? Was consenting unto his death and was keeping the clothes. Keeping the clothes of those who literally took with their bare hands, took stones and stoned Stephen. Saul was there. Saul was there. Saul could look at his hands and, and he, could, he, he literally could say that there is blood on my hands. But you know, Saul became a Christian. But that didn't take away his marred past. And whenever Saul went to Damascus, individuals were, were, were skeptical about his, his initial conversion. Or his conversion. And you think of even Ananias here. God is coming to Ananias and he simply says to Ananias, Ananias, I want you to go to, to Damascus and I want you to find Saul there. How does Ananias respond? Lord, I have heard, verse 13, by many of this man, how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. Even look at verse 26, when Saul then would later go back to Jerusalem. Verse 26, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he said to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. This man had claimed to be converted. Remember, he was a murderer. He was a blasphemer. He was injurious to the church of Jesus Christ. And so he went back to Jerusalem. They just simply did not believe it. Is he really a Christian, this man? Do you know what he's done? So I want you to put yourself now in Saul's shoes. As he goes to Damascus, he goes there with the reputation of a murderer. When he goes back to Jerusalem, perhaps as he goes through the streets of Jerusalem, maybe, as we would say, and you know what I mean, in a tight-knit community like this, maybe he bumped into someone and maybe they're a relation of Stephen. Maybe they look at Saul. Perhaps they, they see, they see, a man who has murdered my cousin, a man who has murdered my uncle, a man who has murdered my son. And undoubtedly this would have haunted Paul. Undoubtedly. In Philippians 3 he, he alludes to this. When he speaks about forgetting those things which are behind. And I want you to see here that Saul. Whenever he was in Damascus initially. And then when he later would go to Jerusalem. I believe that as a young Christian of a number of days or weeks or months. He would have struggled with his past sins. His past sins would have risen up and haunted him. And yet, I have highlighted or I've mentioned at this point is his constant pardon. Because Saul didn't remain in the doldrums of guilt. We read of him in this chapter, increasing in grace, increasing the more in strength. Verse 22, he increased the more in strength. He did not let the guilt of his past life get the better of him. So how did he deal with it? Well, very simply, he recognized that Jesus Christ 
uh, died not merely for some of his sin, but for all of his sin. That includes his past sins, his, past, his, his present sins, and his future sins. And so every time he would be haunted by his past, he simply ran to the Lord and he says, Lord, you have forgiven all of my sin. And yes, some of them are very heinous indeed. But he didn't let his past hinder him. And you know, sometimes in the Christian life, we can cling to the past. We can cling to the past. Our past sins, our past failures. The accuser of the brethren, as he's described in Revelation chapter 12, Satan himself, what does he do? He accuses the brethren day and night. He points at their sin. He highlights their sin to them. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe as a young Christian, perhaps even as an older Christian, you're struggling to progress because you think of all of the terrible things that you've done in the past, terrible things you've thought, things that you've said, and you perhaps even question, am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? And what I would simply say to you tonight is, as we've been saying to the young people all weekend, behold Jesus Christ. The Bible is so clear in this. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1 verse 7 that the blood of Jesus cleanseth us from all sin. And remember, that's not just a once-off cleansing. The term is cleanseth. It's in the, in the continuous tense. It keeps on cleansing from sin. And just as it cleansed you legally in your salvation... It continues to cleanse you experientially in your Christian life. And so young person, what do you do when you sin? You run to Christ. You recognize that he's died for all of your sin. And you simply plunge beneath that flood. You give to Christ your sin. You confess your sin. And this helps you to progress. Philippians 3, 13 and 14 Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind. He didn't stop there. Reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark. He forgot those things which were behind. He's writing later on this Christian experience, decades later. He put the past in the past and he let it stay there. Micah 7 verse 19 says this. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You think of that image. This is how God describes your sin tonight. You throw something into the sea, you don't see it anymore. Unless it's in the shallow. But if you throw it into the ocean, you throw a stone or whatever into the ocean, you don't see it anymore. It's covered. And that's the thought there. What does God do with your sin? He casts it into the depths of the sea. When God forgives, God forgets. And this will help you move forward. I remember trying to minister to a, a, a lady in, a, in the, the, the service of God in a past place where we were. And she's a very godly lady. Very godly indeed. Very faithful in the prayer meeting. Never missed a meeting. But you know, when you spoke with her quietly, she struggled with her past. As you would often have quoted David's words in the psalm, my sin is ever before me. And she struggled. It, it was just as if it was always before her, her past. And a, a wonderful Christian lady, and yet she struggled. She struggled to progress in the present because of her past. So, 
His changed perspective, his constant pardon. Lastly, I want you to see here his continual progress. In verse 22, we read, Saul increased the more in strength confined to the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. In verse 19, there's a reference to his physical strength. He received meat or food, and he was strengthened. Remember, for a few days, Saul had, Saul had fasted. He, he didn't eat, so he had eaten something, and he was strengthened physically. But in verse 22, it's not physical strength, it's spiritual strength. He increased the more in strength. He progressed. He had the encouragement of those who could see the difference in him and around him. He was witnessing. He was getting stronger. He was praying. He was reading. He was with the the saints of God. Eventually they did welcome him in. They did uh, accept him. Here we see Paul. He's a picture of someone who has new life in Christ. He's going forward. And what I want to suggest to you tonight, the secret and, and really the undergirding of all of this, is what Ananias was told to look for in, in these verses. He is told whenever the Lord comes to him, he, he is told in verse 11, Ananias, when you go to the house of Judas, inquire, verse 11, the end of the verse, inquire for one called Saul of Tarsus. Now look at it. For behold, he prayeth. He prayeth. Again, that's in the continuous tense. Whenever you look for Saul, and he'd only be converted a matter of days here, remember. Whenever you're looking for Saul, look for someone who lives in the atmosphere of prayer. Behold, he prayeth. I remember he, he was in a home, a, probably a quite cramped home, small home. He was in the Damascus, probably in the, the inner city region in, in Damascus. He was led by the hand there and Ananias then went and he met him. And again, it's only a suggestion, it's only a thought here, I'm not dogmatic in this, but if you're, going to, if you're told to look for someone who's praying, that suggests that it's not silent prayer. If you're going to look for someone who's praying, well, you're going to have to see them physically in the act and probably hear them. Saul was only a believer, a matter of days. And yet he was engaged in public prayer. And that was actually an evidence of his new life in Jesus Christ. Now let me just say that Saul could say his prayers before. He was a religious individual. He knew what it was to go to special set times of prayer daily, weekly. But you know, Saul was really praying now. He was really praying. And I believe this is what gave him the strength to go to Damascus, to open up the scriptures and to confound these individuals with the scriptures. And so what I'm simply saying to you is, is this. How did he continually progress? How did he continually grow? Well, one of the main ways I want you to see that this was all helped was that he was publicly seeking the Lord. And that was an evidence that helped him. That, that constant dependence upon the Lord for strength as he witnessed, as he sought to live for Jesus Christ, this fostered. His continual progress. I know that some are more introverted than others and some are more extroverted than others. And that there are some who find public prayer more difficult than others. But let me just say this, that it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful testimony to the fact that you depend upon the Lord. 
When it is said of you, young person, older person, behold he prayeth. Can you say that this is that this is how you live your Christian life? That you're just constantly depending on the Lord? That you're living in the atmosphere of prayer? Public prayer, yes. You go about your daily business, whether it's school, university, work, whatever it might be at home. You're doing what God has asked you to do. That you pray. That you continue to look to the Lord for help and, and strength and grace. Someone has rightly said, I think it was C.H. Spurgeon, prayer is the autograph of the Holy Spirit upon a renewed heart. It's the autograph of the Spirit upon a renewed heart. It's as if the Spirit of God just, just autographs your heart. It's a, a sign, it's a seal as it were, that, that there is life within your soul, that you enjoy new life in Jesus Christ when you pray. The Bible tells us in Malachi 4 verse 2, it gives us a, a wonderful picture of progressing in the Christian life. And we read there, Ye shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. Very simple picture there, isn't there? There's a the little calf and it's in the stall and it's feeding, feeding constantly, continually. If the calf doesn't feed, it's not going to grow. But of course, if it, if it is doing what it, it, it needs to do, then there will be progress, there will be growth. You know, as a group of tourists, they were visiting a picturesque village and they'd stopped at this, this village and as they stopped at this village, one of these coach tours, and as they stopped at this village, there's a, just a, a man, a, a farmer, and he was just kind of sitting on the fence, just, just watching the, the time pass by and, and so on. And you know, in a rather patronizing way, one tourist came to him and, and said to him, he said, sir, were there any great men born in this little village? I want to know why they'd stop there. Were there any great men born in this village? The old farmer looked back at him, this tourist, and simply said, no. Only babies. There were only babies born in this town. No fully grown men. I trust tonight that you are a new babe in Christ. I trust tonight that you are born again by the Spirit of God and that you exhibit, that you enjoy, that you know, you know some of these aspects. Look, there's so many more. Your minister could, could, I'm sure, be here for weeks, but some of these aspects, they highlight just to us what new life in Christ really looks like. And I trust that you, that you have these, that if you don't, that, that you will become a Christian and, and know these, this mindset, this this perspective, this pardon, and even this progress in your life. May God bless his word.